0: This is Radiant Radio, WIBC, Indianapolis, and now, one of the world's greatest sports events, the 500-mile race, brought to you direct from the Indianapolis
1: Motor Speedway by Stark & Wetzel, makers of the finest quality meat products. The moments, the memories. This is the Heroes of the 500.
2: He is sputtering slow, and he hits the wall! He hits the wall, coming out of the
1: For 70 years, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway radio network has thrilled audiences around the world, bringing the excitement and pageantry of the world's greatest sporting event to every corner of the globe and creating a slogan that endures to this day.
3: Now stay tuned for the greatest spectacle in racing.
1: Over the next two hours, we'll look back at how the Indianapolis Motor Speedway radio network got its start and bring you some of the moments that are etched in our collective memory thanks to the collective talents of seven decades of incredible announcers and technicians. This is Heroes of the 500, the greatest spectacle in radio on 93 WIBC. I'm Stan Lear. The history of radio at the Indianapolis 500 dates all the way back to 1922 when two small stations, WLK, Indianapolis First Radio Station, and WHO broadcast the race using only one microphone and one announcer to a handful of houses in the Circle City. Both stations went belly up the next year, leaving WFBM and Chicago's WGN to pick up the torch in 1925. The stations broadcast periodic updates from the race during their regular broadcast day. NBC started covering the event in 1928, bringing the final half hour to listeners with their lead announcer, Graham McNamee, on the mic. In 1932, the Speedway disallowed radio coverage in favor of newspaper exclusivity. But by the end of the 1930s, NBC was back, this time with Charlie Lyon on the call. Lyon called the start and finish of the race. A portion of the 1939 race is the oldest known surviving radio coverage of the 500.
4: Bob Swanson really bearing down and passing up Ted Horn. Number 15 is Rex Bay's for the pace is hot and furious right at this point. Billy DeVore, who threw that part of his exhaust pipe a while ago, is sailing around there. Apparently, he's not coming in. The technical committee considers that that is no hazard to himself nor to the other drivers. And so he has not been on... Floyd Roberts! Floyd Roberts, followed by George Bailey in that car I talked so much about a while ago.
1: Interest in covering the 500 on radio was growing. CBS was also covering the race in the late 1930s, as was the Mutual broadcasting system. Mutual's format was to cover the start and finish of the race with updates throughout the day. As you might imagine, this was a programming challenge for stations.
0: Because of the special broadcast that follows, Against the Storm, sponsored by the makers of Philip Morris cigarettes, will be heard one half hour from now over many of these stations. We acknowledge the courtesy of the sponsors in making this move, and we take you now to the Indianapolis Speedway.
1: Right about the time that Against the Storm was being preempted by the race, Mutual was beefing up their coverage. Bill Slater, the voice of Paramount's newsreels, was Mutual's lead announcer for the 500, but he had additional help. Prior to World War II, that help came from Cincinnati's WLW, but after the war, it came from a station that had taken to the airwaves for the first time on October 30, 1938, WIBC. Here's Bill Slater in 1949 as he prepared to give listeners a staple of later race day broadcast, the rundown of the starting lineup.
0: And I'm going to turn you over in just a moment to WIBC Mutual's man who is watching this race the whole year round, who will line up the starting drivers for you. Here's Gene Kelly. Gene? They'll line up in threes, inside out. Here we go. Duke Nayland Sherman Oaks, California, driving the fastest car, the Novi Mobile Special. Rex Mays, Glendale, California, twin of the car. Con- that I just mentioned. Jack McGrath, South Pasadena, California. Row two, Bill Holland, finished twice, twice in a row, 47-48, driving the same car. He's from Reading, Pennsylvania. Dwayne Carter of Santa Monica, California. George Connor driving the third of the Blue Crown Spark Plug Specials. It's the rear drive. Then comes Jimmy Jackson of Desert Hot Springs, California, in a car similar to the Blue Crowns. Then George Lynch from Detroit, Michigan, a former paratrooper who participated in 30 jumps during the War. Johnny Mann's, famed dirt track driver from Long Beach, California. And then the man to beat today, Maury Rose, the oldest of the drivers at 43 from South Bend, Indiana. Hal Cole driving a car with the smallest engine in the race. Displacement of 220 cubic inches. Johnny Parsons, hottest dirt track driver the country over in the championship races. All-time record in the rear drive at 132.9. Myron Ford from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Mac Hellings driving the Don Lee car from Burbank, California. Duke Dinsmore from Dayton, Ohio. Joey Chitwood from Reading, Pennsylvania. Jackie Holmes from Indianapolis, Indiana. 22-year-old Bobby Sox favorite. Troy Rutman, hot roadster driver from Ontario, California. Paul Russo from Hammond, Indiana, one of a team of two of the toughie offies from Hammond, Indiana. Lee Wallard of Schenectady, New York, driving a Maserati this year. Jim Rathman, a rookie driver from Los Angeles, California. Bill Scheffler, former pole vaulter from USC from Los Angeles, California. Sam Hanks from Glendale, California. Norm Hauser, whose daddy was a famous mechanic for, Tommy Milton, driving his first time today from Indianapolis, Indiana. Another rookie, George Fonder of Lansdale, Pennsylvania, driving the car that won the race in 1946. Then the bouncing Belgian, Charlie Van Acker from South Bend, Indiana. Johnny McDowell, who barely made it into the race today, and Bill will tell you about that later, from Los Angeles, California. Rookie Bayless Leverett from Glendale, California, who turned in an amazing 129 in qualification. Then there's Bill Cantrell from Louisville, Kentucky, famed speedboat driver as well. Then there's Freddie Agabation of Albany, California, and Emil Andres in the second of the two twin Tuffy offies from Blue Island, Illinois, and finally Manuel Ayulo of Burbank, California, 33 cars averaging 128 and a half miles an hour.
1: In addition to Gene Kelly, Mutual also had WIBC's Jim Shelton on what was described as the North Turn, and a young man from Indianapolis who had made his debut in 1948 on the South Turn.
0: Collins on the south turn. And as they come around the south turn, directly
3: in front of our broadcasting booth, right down the south straightaway, it's number 54. Newman, followed by Rex our followed by Jack McGrath, Bill Holland, and George
2: Turner.
1: Sid Collins worked the 1949 broadcast as a turn announcer and was expected to move into the booth as lead announcer for 1950 because Bill Slater was expected to miss the race due to illness. But Slater showed up unexpectedly, disappointing Collins who was hoping for his big break. Slater, recognizing what had happened, allowed Collins to share the booth with him on race day as a co-announcer. Now here in
0: the pagoda with me is Sid Collins top midwestern sports broadcaster and Sid's going to give you just a little bit of the lineup he's going to give you the entire information as to the lineup of the 33 cars who have taken their places down on the track here now Sid Collins or do you want to bring in Jimmy Melton singing back home again in Indiana
1: I think we better get a rundown of the cars right now Bill in addition to his duties in the booth Collins got to interview the winner of the rain shortened race Johnny Parsons making sure to provide plenty of play-by-play of the victory lane activities
3: Johnny, let's have another word, coast <laughs> to coast, our mutual microphone.
4: Barbara? Well, I'm awfully glad that we won the race, but as I said before, I'm yes, sorry, it rained.
3: But that's about all I got to say. You're kind of tired after that race and after those kisses, Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love the kisses. Yeah. You want to try it again? Yeah. All right, let's have one for the microphone here, for the television cameras here, and our microphone, coast to coast, our okay. mutual, shall we? Okay. All right, and there's Barbara Stanwyck over there. She's giving Wilbur a great big wink or two and also several kisses for Johnny Parson. Now she has her arms around him now for the MGM movie cameras.
1: But as Bill Slater signed off for 1950, big changes were about to come to the broadcast and radio coverage of the 500 was about to go from broadcast to spectacle.
3: Now fans, stay tuned for the greatest spectacle in racing.
1: This is Heroes of the 500, the greatest spectacle in radio.
0: broadcasts of the Indianapolis 500-mile race, which was abbreviated to 345 miles today by rain. These broadcasts have been presented in honor of the man who services and repairs your car, that expert, dependable mechanic, your doctor of motors. And the story of today's race has been brought to you by the makers and distributors of Perfect Circles, the most honored name in piston rings. Now, this is Bill Slater speaking to you finally from Indianapolis, reminding you that Johnny Parsons was the winner in in an abbreviated 345-mile race. Bill Slater telling you, goodbye from Indianapolis. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.
1: This is Heroes of the 500, the greatest spectacle in radio. I'm Stan Lear. When Bill Slater signed off the Mutual Broadcasting System's coverage of the Indianapolis 500 in 1950, he made sure to thank the Perfect Circle Piston Ring Company, the major sponsor of the broadcast. But for 1951, Mutual raised their advertising rates substantially, and Perfect Circle pulled their support of the broadcast. Without a major sponsor, Mutual decided to pull the plug on their national broadcast, and it looked like once again the race would not be carried on radio. But at the last minute, in early May of 1951, Speedway President Wilbur Shaw made a deal with WIBC to carry the race with Sid Collins as the anchor. WIBC followed Mutual's previous format of live coverage at the start and finish of the race with periodic updates throughout the event. Here is a rare excerpt of the finish of that race, which hasn't been heard on WIBC since it originally aired on May 30th, 1951. With Sid Collins in Victory Lane, Bill Fox, sports editor of the Indianapolis News, called the finish.
4: But it looks like the checkered flag is going to be taken by car number 99 before Mike Nasrick in car number 83, a rookie making his first appearance at Indianapolis, gets his white flag. Mr. Klein is peering up the track. 99, here he comes, Lee Waller, the Rex of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway has taken the 35th 500 mile race in which all records were broken from 10 miles through
5: 500.
1: With the success of the last-minute 1951 broadcast behind them, Speedway management decided to not take any chances for the following year by bringing the broadcast in-house with the creation of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Radio Network. For 1952, the Speedway launched the network using on-air talent and technical support staff from WIBC, and once again following the established mutual format of live coverage at the start and finish with periodic updates during the race.
3: The most exciting thing in all the races we have seen in the past seven years occurred. Bill Vukovic and Troy Rutman, in cars number 26 and 98 respectively were running neck and neck. Vukovic, who has been leading since the ninth lap in the race... Back and forth with Rutman was just 28 seconds ahead of Troy, and Rutman had been cutting the lead down consistently for the past six laps, about two seconds for each lap. Uh, Vukovic had won $14,000 in lap prizes at $100 per lap, so you can see how often he was ahead of the field with Rutman winning $3,400 worth of lap prizes. But on the 192nd lap, Vukovic in car number 26 hit the southeast turn. The car spun, hit the wall. The driver Bill Vukovich walked away from the injured from the accident uninjured and waved to the crowd in the stands. So Vukovich who was within eight laps of possibly winning this year's 500 is out of the race. And Troy Ruttman in car number 98, a seemingly dark horse before this race today, is now leading. He's in first place 3 laps ahead of Jim Rathmann in car number 59.
1: For 1953, another major change was made to the broadcast. After the other stations complained about WIBC's talent exclusivity on the broadcast, the pool was extended to include all five major stations in the area. That opened up the opportunity for the first ever flag-to-flag coverage of the 500 on an oppressively hot day. The number of affiliates carrying the broadcast continued to climb, topping 100 for the first time in 1953 as stations all across the country began to get in on the action.
0: Other sports fans, your extra friendly mobile gas dealer who does business under the sign of the flying red horse invites you to a grandstand seat at America's greatest sporting event, the historic 500 mile Indianapolis race. For the next four hours you'll hear an on the spot report of this dramatic race by Sid Collins, eminent Midwest sportscaster.
1: Bill Vukovich won the race without relief and Sid Collins was in victory lane to greet the new champion.
3: Okay, coach to coast. you say just a word about how you feel on winning the race? Oh, it feels all right. Everybody's happy to win. <laughs> Bill, did you think you'd want relief any time in the race? How did you say? Think you want relief any time
0: in the race? No. Never want relief. There's an Ironman, folks, and he's really tired, and he can't hear a single thing. For
1: 1954, another change would be made to the broadcast, one that endures to this day. Following the first flag-to-flag broadcast in 1953, Speedway management solicited opinions from stations across the country on how to improve the broadcast. Speedway historian emeritus Donald Davidson picks up the story from there.
5: Yeah, the story is that after 1953, which was the first all day, flag to flag coverage. Uh, for a while, it was reported 1952, which was the first year for the network that they did that. Well, they didn't. Uh, they did the old uh, mutual format, which was the beginning, the end, and then reports uh, during it. So 53, they did the full broadcast, and uh, so they, uh, WIBC, was the flagship station. And so they sought input from the people that were carrying it. Uh, you know, what what, uh, what what suggestions do you have? Uh, do you like it or would you change it in any way? And then apparently the number one request was could there be a standard out cue because, you know, our man's in uh, Omaha, Nebraska or, or – you know Casper, Wyoming, or something at a radio station. It's Memorial Day, and he maybe doesn't really know anything about racing, and he's sitting there waiting for a break. And and uh, if there's like a a key phrase, he'll know to oh stop reading the paper. It's time to hit the button. So anyway, then um, Richard Fairbanks, Mister Fairbanks, owned WIBC, and apparently he came in to uh, the jocks and and the. Um, sales staff and said all right here's your mission Get come up with a phrase so I think it's fair to say that Sid Collins popularized it but apparently it was a lady named Miss Alice Bugner I think or Bugner was her maiden name and uh, she was uh, uh, sort of like a girl Friday in the sales department and she wrote copy and apparently she came back one day and said uh, how about stay tuned to the greatest spectacle in racing. And Sid evidently said, my word, I think you've got something there. On May 31st, 1954, Sid Collins
1: first uttered a phrase that has become one of the most enduring traditions in sports.
3: Now fans, stay tuned for the greatest spectacle in racing.
1: The following year, Sid Collins and his crew were faced with a tragic set of circumstances on race day.
6: Bill Vukovich is on his 56th lap. We have not received the standings at the end of 50 laps, but we have them unofficially, and they're going to be jumbled up very shortly. The caution light is out. The caution light is out, and we'll probably be getting a report very shortly, so I'll hold it here just temporarily before getting into the standings. The caution light is out, indicating trouble.
1: Bill Vukovich lost his life while leading the race on the way to what would have been an unprecedented third straight victory. Collins had the unenviable task of breaking the news to a now worldwide audience coming out of an interview with violinist Florian Zabok. An official
3: report from the Speedway Hospital here from Dr. Bonner, the director of medical staff at the Speedway. And in broadcasting this race now in our eighth consecutive year, we have never had to make such an announcement, and we're most regretful. Bill Vukovich winner of the 500-mile race, almost, trying for a third consecutive today, trapped in his car in the backstretch, was injured fatally. Bill Bukovich has died as a result of injury suffered on the backstretch in the accident reported to you earlier on this broadcast.
1: Coming up next, another tragic accident leads to a poignant tribute.
3: Eddie Sachs exits this earth in a race car. Knowing Eddie, I assume that's the way
1: he would have wanted it. This is Heroes of the 500, the greatest spectacle in radio.
3: Here's the check and flag for Jim Raffman, the winner of the 44th annual 500-mile race.
1: This is Heroes of the 500, the greatest spectacle in radio. I'm Stan Lear. As the popularity of the 500 continued to increase in the late 1950s, so did the number of stations carrying the broadcast of the event. By 1955, the race was carried in all 48 states and worldwide via Armed Forces Radio, reaching every country where English was spoken, as Sid Collins was fond of saying. In 1961, new states Alaska and Hawaii were added, and fans around the world got to hear an amazing finish. It appeared Eddie Sachs was on his way to victory after a hard-fought battle with A.J. Foyt. But a last-minute pit stop took Sid Collins and driver analyst Freddie Agabasian by surprise.
3: Now coming oh, here in for a pit Sachs. stop is Eddie Sachs. A surprise, oh, a pit we. stop for Eddie Sachs coming in. Let's see if we can pick him up from here because John Peterson is not in the south pit. He's gone to victory lane. So it's a great break for A.J. Foyt and if he passes him in this pit now, Eddie Sachs will come in second instead of first. As we said, this 500 mile race goes 500 miles with three laps to go. Eddie Sachs is in the pit and now he's being uh, pushed and they're still working and going by is A.J. Foyt takes the lead from Eddie Sachs to the South third with three laps to go. And now we still have the question of whether Foyt's car has enough fuel to finish the race.
1: Foyt would go on to win the race, his first of four Indianapolis 500 wins. Three years later, Sachs had changed teams, moving from Al Dean's organization to driving the American Red Ball Special for team owner Dick Summers but Sachs was caught up in a devastating crash with rookie Dave McDonald on the second lap. There's the
3: yellow caution flag is being waved. The yellow light is on. There's an accident on the main stretch up in front of us. Jim Shelton, can you see it? Out of the fourth turn, there's a car burning. Jim, come in.
7: Sit, there has been a spectacular crash almost at the head of the main stretch. There's so much fire and so much smoke. it's uh, I am unable to see any car at all.
1: During the red flag delay, the terrible news that fans were dreading was relayed by Tom Carnegie on the public address system, leading to a remarkable moment on the Speedway radio network. And now here's an announcement of the public address system. Can we pick this up?
0: It is with deepest regret that we make this announcement, driver Eddie Sachs was fatally injured in the accident on the main straightaway. You heard the announcement
3: from the public address system. There's not a sound. Men are taking off their hats. People are weeping over 300,000 fans here, are not moving are disbelieving. Some men try to conquer life in a number of ways. In these days of our outer space attempt, some men try to conquer the universe race drivers are courageous men who try to conquer life and death and they calculate their risks and in our talking with them over the years I um, think we know their inner thoughts in regard to racing they take it as a part of living no one is, is moving uh, on the racetrack they're standing silently a race driver who leaves this earth uh, mentally when he straps himself into the cockpit to try for what to him is the biggest conquest he can make is aware of the odds. And Eddie Sachs played the odds. He was serious and frivolous. He was fun. He was a wonderful gentleman. He took much needling and gave much needling. just as the astronauts do, perhaps, um, these boys on the race track ask no quarter and they give none. If they succeed, they're a hero. And if they fail, they tried. And it was Eddie's desire, I'm sure, and will, to try with everything he had, which he always did. So the only healthy way, perhaps, we can approach the tragedy of the loss of a friend like Eddie Sachs is to know that he would have wanted us to face it as he did, as it has happened, not as we wish it would have happened. It is God's will, I'm sure, and we must accept that all speeding toward death at the rate of 60 minutes every hour. The only difference is that we don't know uh, how to speed faster, and Eddie Sachs did. And so since death has a thousand or more doors, Eddie Sachs exits this earth in a race car. Knowing Eddie,
1: I assume that's the way he would have wanted it. Speedway historian emeritus Donald Davidson says Collins' incredible preparation allowed him to be ready for that moment.
5: Some people have suggested that he had an obituary written for every driver and would bring out the one that was appropriate. Well, that's a bunch of nonsense. Uh, But had he given it some thought? Absolutely. Preparedness. Sid was all about preparation. And he had to have thought when he was, you know, on a driving somewhere, if it happened, what would I say? And he was great with quotes. Whether or not he had some notes, or whether he did it off the top of his head, I don't know because I wasn't up there yet. I went up later, but um, he, he may have just had a, you know, a few notes written down. But um, he must have gone over in his mind because he was a professional. You have to be prepared. What, if it happened, what would I say?
1: Coincidentally, May 30th, 1964, was Donald Davidson's first race day at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And he saw firsthand how Sachs' death affected Collins.
5: I actually went up during the red flag uh, to the booth. And uh, so, he, so Sid waved me in and, uh, he, you know, I think he said, what do you know? And, and uh, he said, well, you know, we're all pretty somber up here right now. And I, I, I think he'd been crying.
1: Davidson would make his own debut on the network that day, the start of an American dream that started with a young man from Salisbury, England, sending a letter to Collins.
5: Well, it's been marvelous the way I've been uh, received. I didn't expect this at all. When I arrived here, I was quite prepared to uh, speak to maybe two mechanics and a driver, and I would have been happy. But but everyone has been just marvelous. uh, I've really had a wonderful time. And we invite you to be on
3: this broadcast because we are heard through Armed Forces Radio Service in London. That's where you have been listening to us over these
5: years. That's right.
1: Donald Davidson was back again in 1965, becoming a staple of the month of May for decades, both on the Speedway Radio Network and WIBC with the Talk of Gasoline Alley program. He enhanced the enjoyment of the race for fans around the world with his knowledge and enthusiasm for the greatest spectacle in racing. But Davidson is always quick to credit Collins for helping him get his start.
5: Uh, I came back the next year, and then I was uh, part of the Brace uh, the, the State Broadcast, and I had emigrated. I got a job at the United States Auto Club, and then the following year, I did a, a, a very short program, which was the forerunner of what became the talk of Gasoline Alley. So I owe Sid Collins a, a huge deal of gratitude. And in fact, uh, Henry Banks, who hired me at USAC, and Sid, I think of the people outside of my family. Those are the two people to whom I owe the most. And so uh, and I, I didn't think to do this until fairly recent years. But now, at least once on race day, I try to sleep slip in. Thank you, Sid.
1: Sid Collins' Indianapolis 500 broadcasts were much different than the play-by-play heavy coverage that we are used to today. And he always had time for guests in the booth. Dozens of celebrities were interviewed by the voice of the 500 over the years, such as the time that Cesar Romero, the Joker from TV's Batman, dropped by in 1966.
0: It's terrible to see a thing like this happen, to, to have them get out of the race even before the thing actually hardly got started. Well,
3: that's the way they feel about it. This is their life they work for, and this is the big one, you know, today. And not even to have a
0: chance to compete is, is very frustrating indeed. Well, I can understand that. Well, it's a, it's a shame. It's, a, it's a, And it's a kind of put, for me, it's put sort of a damper on it. I don't know. Why. Well, we'll
3: do that. I think once but, we start again, of course, you won't see the 33 car field, but you'll see uh, an abbreviated field, and I hope a good race, Caesar. Well, I hope so too. But it's been, it's been a wonderful experience. I'm delighted to have thank been you. here. Thank you for coming thank by. You, I'd like to give you a gold filled Zippo lighter as a guest of the network here well, for being on the very program. It's very welcome. Thank you, Sid. Have a nice time.
1: Interviews with the drivers that had dropped out of the race were also a staple of the Speedway radio network coverage, although sometimes those asking the questions may have gotten more candor in the responses than expected. Now
3: to the center pit again, here's Luke Walton. And Sid, I have
4: Yakin Rent here in the center pit. Yakin, you've been having some difficulty here for about the last half hour in the car. What was the matter?
3: Uh, I think I lost the piston ring first, and then the motor hose blew up, and I lost all the water. But didn't matter because the engine didn't have any power
4: anyway. This is your first time to race in the 500. What do you think of it? Not much. Plan on coming back? No, not coming back. Thank you very much. Now back to the tower and sin.
3: Luke, his comment doesn't surprise us. Lynn and I were talking about this before. Jochen, quoted all month, is not enjoying this race here, and this happens sometimes. After all, there are some race tracks that some people take to and some they don't. Even some of our championship drivers in America had certain tracks they didn't like, and for some reason Jochen from Vienna has not enjoyed his stay here and didn't
1: fare very well. But we hope he does come back. Coming up next, the voice of the 500
5: is silenced. And he said, "Um, I guess you heard about Sid. And I said, no, what about Sid? And he said, well, he died this morning. And... um,
1: (sighs) This is Heroes of the 500, the greatest spectacle in radio.
3: And here is Pat Vadan waving the checkered flag for Al Unser, winner of the 1971 Indianapolis 500-mile race.
1: This is Heroes of the 500, the greatest spectacle in radio. I'm Stan Lear. As speeds increased, so did the number of stations carrying the Indianapolis 500 on radio. Sid Collins and his incredible team of broadcasters and technicians were bringing the excitement of the world's greatest sporting event around the world. But in 1973, the Speedway radio network was put to the test as never before, covering the disastrous month of May that ended up with two drivers and a pit crewman losing their lives. The race was held over three days, and the radio network was on the air for nearly nine hours. At one point, after Swede Savage's terrible accident on the third day, a crash which would tragically lead to his death in July, and the subsequent death of one of Patrick Racing's crew members who was struck and killed by a fire truck racing to the scene of Savage's crash. Sid Collins had clearly seen enough.
3: Well, this has been uh, one of the most uh, disastrous months of May all the way around. And for you stations on our worldwide radio network, all we can tell you is to monitor your lines in your control rooms. We'll be talking with you, monitor the lines in the control rooms. We'll give you adequate warning of our return to the air. We have no idea whether this will be 15 minutes, one hour, or July.
1: And if you think the chief announcer wanted the race to be over, consider for a moment the affiliate stations who were constantly juggling their schedules that week, waiting to accommodate the rain and crash-delayed event. Here's a rare clip from KBIG in Los Angeles.
7: Once again, Ray Willis here at KBIG reminding you that uh, there has been a delay in the race at Indianapolis 500, which is uh, news that you heard before. The race did get underway, however, at 12 noon today, our time. So there has been a temporary delay in the Indianapolis 500. I know you've heard that before, too. So uh, bear with us if you will. Meanwhile, we'll provide you with some form of entertainment if we possibly can in the way of music and Mama Cass.
1: Rain would plague the race again in 1975 and 1976, shortening it again in the latter year to just 102 laps.
3: You know, for the first time, I see some of the fans leaving and heading toward the exits. I think they have decided that it's going to rain. And they're not going to see any more of this race today. Sid,
4: uh, those are the people that uh, aren't undercover, if you'll notice, and they're headed, headed into the alleys where they are covered. They're not leaving, though. They're not about to leave. They know there's going to be some more racing. It's a good point. I stand corrected.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, I sit corrected at this point after a couple of hours of standing here. Okay. <laughs> You're probably right. But I am afraid we'll see more water here on this uh, left side of our booth on this grass, that we, on this glass, rather. We may see some more rain. Uh, Jimmy Shelton, is it raining up your way on number four?
7: Uh, you don't want me to say it, but, no. uh, but it is. I'm okay. sorry. sorry. All right, we'll
3: get off of that then. We won't even talk about
7: it.
1: Following the race, as he did each year, Sid Collins left listeners with a final thought.
3: Today, once again, Johnny Rutherford etched his name and his achievement upon the granite of time. He reigns supreme as a champion of the sport of auto racing this day and forevermore. The massive crowd of more than 350,000 has threaded its way toward the exit gates as their eyes have taken a final sweep over the track before departing. For some, this has been a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience others will come back but in every case it's always difficult to relinquish one's grasp on the pulsating emotion that is the 500. And at this microphone, we share that reaction and having to say goodbye to you across the many miles that separate us. But another icy Indiana winter will come and go, and before we know it, springtime returns. It will be May, and the roar of engines will once again breathe life into the lazy Hoosier sky and bring us back together. God willing, I'll be here to greet you for this annual reunion through our mutual love of auto racing and the Indianapolis 500. And now this final thought for our winner. Enthusiasm with wisdom will carry a man further than any amount of intellect without it. The men who have most powerfully influenced the world have not been so much men of genius as they have been men of strong conviction with an enduring capacity for work coupled with enthusiasm and determination. Johnny Rutherford showed these qualities today in becoming victorious over the Indianapolis 500 so until next may this is sid collins the voice of the 500 wishing you good morning good afternoon or good evening depending upon where in the world you are right now we're here at the indianapolis motor speedway at the crossroads of america goodbye
1: what wasn't known at the time was it truly was goodbye sid collins hadn't been feeling well for quite a while And in April 1977, he traveled to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota to try and get a diagnosis. While there, he learned he had ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. His friends were immediately concerned when Collins returned from Minnesota due to their friends' pain and despair. Speedway historian emeritus Donald Davidson.
5: Oh, it, it's it's sort of personal, but he said, um, "I, I the, the last time I saw him, I had called up and he didn't want to see me. And I said, well, we're really concerned about you. And I talked to him for a few minutes and he said, I don't want to see anybody right now. And within two, three, four minutes, he said, uh, do you know where such and such a thing is on on.'" Uh, uh, Keystone Avenue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, meet me there in twenty minutes. So I went over, and he he had not shaved, which was a real surprise. But he was all dressed up, and he, clearly he'd been crying. And uh, so I I noted that. I said, but Sid, you know, you know, you took the trouble to put on a tie. And he said, Well, that's me. And he said, That's how I'll always be. And and I think he just couldn't bear the thought of not being able to care for himself and that people would have to dress him and wash him and all that kind of stuff and uh it, it's it, it i don't know it's sort of something probably you really shouldn't talk about because he was a, a very public person but also very private and uh, he was big about the image and referred to himself in third person a lot and uh and so You know, all these years later, I guess it's okay to talk about it, but I wouldn't have done it at the time. On May 2nd, 1977,
1: Donald Davidson, along with the rest of the world, learned the tragic news. Sid Collins had taken his own life.
5: I remember specifically I got a call. uh, It was the day before the track opened, May the 2nd. uh, And I got a call from Jed Duval, and uh, he said... Uh, at at WIBC, and it probably was about 10.30 or something like that. And he said, "Um, I guess you heard about Sid. And I said, no, what about Sid? And he said, well, he died this morning. And um, I I don't know that I was surprised because uh, he... We, we knew he was very despondent over his condition and what his future might be. And uh, some of us had spent time with him, and uh, I had just a few days before that. And he was pretty distraught, but you thought that he would pull through it. The man who would succeed, Sid Collins, is the voice of the
1: 500, Paul Page. Sid was an incredible man. He was an absolute
8: perfectionist, uh, which is why he was so successful. There was no detail left undone in Sid's life. Sid was never married. He was married to the Speedway, married to broadcasting. And he dedicated himself totally to that. And I think that uh, that that dedication almost more than anything else shines through when I think of Sid.
1: Sid Collins was 54 years old he remains one of the most beloved figures in the history of the world's greatest race course. His enduring legacy, turning the broadcast of the Indianapolis 500 into the greatest spectacle in racing. Coming up next, a new generation of voices picks up the torch.
4: Stay tuned for the greatest spectacle in racing.
1: This is Heroes of the 500, the greatest spectacle in radio.
2: I'm the on the greatest, 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 greatest.
3: This is the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Network.
1: Welcome to Hour 2 of Heroes of the 500, the greatest spectacle in radio. I'm Stan Lear. In Hour One, we detail the early history of radio coverage of the Indianapolis 500 and the formation of the Speedway Radio Network, which was anchored by its chief announcer and the man known around the world as the voice of the 500, Sid Collins. But just one day before the track opened in 1977, Sid Collins desponded over his diagnosis that he had ALS. Sadly, took his life. The loss of their leader hit the Speedway Radio Network team hard, especially Paul Page, who had become Collins' hand-picked successor, despite only recently joining the team. I was working
8: at WIBC and uh, in the news department, and uh, he was my mentor. Uh, he started several years, well, I, he brought me onto the network in 1974. And in 75 and 76, he spent a lot of time with me both uh, here at the radio station, but also at, uh, at the track when we were doing reports and qualifying days, uh, grooming me, teaching me how to interview, hopefully how to call a race, what things were important, how you put things together. And so, yeah, he set me up for this, and it was his uh, specific request that I be the su- successor.
1: Page knew he would succeed Collins as voice of the 500, but he thought he had more time to learn from his mentor. He never expected to have to move into the role so soon.
8: No, Sid was a young man, and I thought that I was probably going to be his understudy for 10 or 12 years at least. He was in his 50s, so he had plenty of time to spend. And unfortunately, he was overtaken by amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, Lou Gehrig's disease, and uh, that took his life.
1: With Paige now in the anchor chair, the team worked on covering the historic 1977 Indianapolis 500. Tom Sneva had become the first driver to break the 200 mile per hour barrier in qualifications. And Janet Guthrie made history as the first female driver to qualify for the Indianapolis 500. But Collins was on everyone's mind, As his longtime friend and co-worker at both WIBC and the Speedway radio network, Jim Shelton, opened the 1977 broadcast on May 29th.
7: Sid Collins, the voice of the 500 for almost 30 years, is not here with us today. But I'm sure in spirit he is cheering for all this broadcast crew. He was that type of man. Today in spirit he has the safety of all these fine drivers in mind. He was that type of man. Through the many years here at the 500, Sid was an advisor, brother, father, and counselor for drivers, mechanics, and all of us on the broadcast crew. His advice and counsel will remain with all of us through the years. His ability as a fine broadcaster will remain with you listeners for a long time. He was a perfectionist. He accepted a job to do. The job was well done. May 2nd, Sid Collins passed away. He had contracted ALS, the Lou Gehrig disease. We'll miss Sid Collins. He was our friend, but he was a friend of yours too. Sid was a man of great ability, articulate, and a gentleman through and through. But Sid Collins knew that no man is indispensable and will be cheering all of us on to do a good job like he always wanted us to do. Now. Please join all of us in a moment of silence in memory of Sid. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. And now here is Sid's good friend, race driver, broadcaster, and a well-qualified man, and our new voice of the 500, Paul Page.
4: Thank you very much, Jim Shelton, and greetings from Indianapolis. This broadcast crew deeply feels the loss of our leader, Sid Collins, and we are here today going to perform in the way that he would have wanted us to, the way that he taught all of us for many, many years. We hope that you will join with us in dedicating this 61st running of the 500-mile race to Sid Collins. It's May 29th, 1977. This is race day at Indianapolis.
1: One of the first things that Paul Page changed when he took over the anchor chair was the way the race itself was called. Collins acted more as a host or master of ceremonies, having his team report events that had occurred. Page changed the broadcast to what we know today, play-by-play of events as they happened. It was, it was
8: both technology and the times. Uh, Sid was working with a system and a process that was developed starting back in 1952. And uh, at one time, you have, to, you have to put this into context. At one time, it was difficult just to get an announcer's cable out from one of the turns to master control. And the technology alone in 1952 and the 50s required contributions from every radio station in town. There was no satellite it was AT&T long lines. It was all manually done. And in fact, they were hooking stations on the morning of the race. Well, now we have satellite. We have this improving technology. We didn't have satellite in 77 when I took over. But we had technology that allowed us to move out of the the system, which was the turn reporter called the producer and said, I have an accident here. The producer, Jack Morrell, then wrote turn one accident on a card and handed it to Sid. Sid would say... We see the yellow flag out, we're going out, and it was all past tense. I instead uh, developed a system where each announcer could talk directly into my right ear, off the air. And by the same token, I had a button that I could push and I could talk to all the announcers at once. And that system put us in real time. And I just wanted to do it because the race was now moving so fast. Uh, There were a number of things that I felt I had to address to bring it into that real time mode. And I thought it was important
4: to do. So the chase is on. But Gordon Johncock has pulled over to the left side of the straightaway. He appears to be slowing. He has cut his car in off of the apron at the south end of the main straightaway away. A.J. Foyt is now our leader. There is apparently something wrong in Gordon Johncock's car. We see the um, we see Gordon Johncock climbing out of his machine at the moment on the grass that used to be victory lane here at Indianapolis. It is not victory lane for Gordon Johncock.
1: The Speedway Radio Network had an incredible race to cover in 1977. Gordon Johncock led 129 laps before being sidelined with a broken crankshaft less than 20 laps from the finish. That set up an historic finish for one of the all-time greats of the speedway.
4: And now to call the checkered flag our chief announcer who did call a great race today, Paul Page. A.J. Foyt down the main straightaway, the checkered flag is out, A.J.'s hand in the air, he is the winner! A.J. Foyt at Indianapolis has won his fourth 500-mile race.
1: For Page, the 1977 Indianapolis 500 was a draining but rewarding experience. The story laid out perfectly for me and
8: made made the whole concept because Sid you know, took his life in early May and made the whole whole job, which was a heavy, a heavy, heavy burden at that time, made it so much easier because there was something to talk about. There were beautiful stories to be played. And then at the end of the race, and we were in the old master control tower, and they used to pull the winner right up at the base of that, up on a platform. And so A.J. Foyt's looking right up at me. I'm looking down on one of the greatest drivers that ever lived – making history, his fourth win, the first time anybody won four Indy 500s. And just, I mean, the whole thing, it it was wonderful. It was an incredible experience and a tremendous relief that at least I got that one done. Who knows what the future is, but this one worked out pretty well because they gave me the clay.
1: And he took lessons learned from his mentor, Sid Collins, on that classic call of Foyt's victory, as he told our Mike Thompson.
8: You've talked, I know, so many times about how much the Indianapolis Motor Speedway means to you, and you can hear it in your voice when AJ comes across the line for that fourth win, AJ Foyt at Indianapolis. It wasn't AJ Foyt wins the race, it was Indianapolis, and you really brought that home that day. Well, it it's actually a combination. Uh, yeah, I was very emotional that it was AJ, and when it hit on me that he was the potential winner, and I realized we had a four time winner coming up here. That all was overwhelming me, but also something that that Sid taught, which is don't go to the obvious. Don't if play your tapes back and if you find out that every year you've said the same thing on a winner, then you've done it wrong. And so I was very conscious of that. And
1: I've been conscious of those kind of lessons ever since. Coming up next, Paul Page and his incredible crew of broadcasters call a finish for the ages. Bear! This is Heroes of the 500, the greatest spectacle in radio.
4: Number four, the Pennzoil Chaparral, his hands in the air. Johnny Rutherford wins the 1980 Indianapolis 500-mile race.
1: This is Heroes of the 500, the greatest spectacle in radio. I'm Stan Lear. At the end of the 1970s and the start of the 1980s, radio was still king at 16th and Georgetown. While ABC television had started full race tape-delayed broadcast of the event in 1971, the only way you could follow the action live in those days was on the Speedway radio network. And that had the number of stations carrying the race continuing to climb, topping out at 1,200 stations and 100 million listeners worldwide. In 1982, fans got to hear one of the greatest finishes in the history of the 500. An incredible duel between leader Gordon Johncock and hard-charging Rick Mears.
2: And Mears is right there. The white flag. It's a drag race. They're side-by-side. Side. Johncock and Mears. Mears on the inside. Johncock. Mears forced down the middle of the line. Run! Johncock cuts him off. Hey, what a... This looks like the start of this race. Johncock then Mears. They're in turn two. Now It's still Gordon Johncock. Mears is trying, but he's about ten car legs behind as they streak down this five-eighths of a mile backstretch to turn three. Less than half a lap ago. Gordon Johncock by five car legs over Rick Mears. They're in the north. Short shoot. Here they come. This is the final quarter lap. Johncock maintains the lead. The voice of the 500, Paul Page. Who's going to win it? Gordon Johncock off the fourth turn. Mears is right behind him. Johncock. Mears makes a throw.
1: Paul Page gives credit to the incredible team of broadcasters with him on that day for the memorable call.
8: I'm glad you mentioned the team in that because radio at that level is very much a team. And we realized as they came off of their laps, last stops, we started doing the math on how much Rick was closing. And we thought, wow, we get to the white flag. Those two mathematically are going to be side by side. So, on this private intercom, I said, guys, let's, let's play this and we'll play. I mean, we normally would play the, the leaders, but we might go a little bit deeper and try to cover down through five going to the checkered flag. And we stayed with that, and we were excited about it. I always believe that the announcers need to be guys with passion. Those guys certainly were. And the passion came through, and the, the script was there, and we just played a part.
1: Page says the fact that the Speedway radio network was the only source of live information at the time made it a much more stressful situation.
8: Yeah, and that was then and continues to be to this day a, a fairly, fairly large burden because it's the one program of the year that you realize has great significance it's not just another program it's the Indianapolis 500 mile race and you can't get it wrong um, and you have to be so careful because because of its important to all the participants and to the fans it's it's got to come through right and um, so you're thinking about that and when you're looking at that close a finish I mean there have been other finishes that have been close uh, but that one, That one still stands alone as because of its nature, the finish that matters.
1: After calling Al Unser's historic fourth victory in 1987, Paul Page moved to the television booth, and Lou Palmer, who first started on the network in 1958, took over as the chief announcer.
8: They are here. They come here every May. They will be one hour from now at the center of the auto racing universe.
4: They have come 71 times before and written history at this, the greatest race course in the
1: world. We don't yet know how many pages today's chapter will take. We do know today's event is scheduled for 200 laps, 500 miles, 33 drivers are at this moment preparing for the adventure. And we on the Indianapolis Motor Speedway radio network along with you are preparing to focus on this one of a kind event. It's race day in Indianapolis. Palmer's team covered Rick Mears' win in 1988 and the historic duel between Al Unser Jr. and Emerson Fittipaldi the following year. They're
2: side-by-side, ammo side. on the inside. Al Conner traffic, goes high, they touch wheels. Oh. Al Jr. into the wall hard. Emerson Fittipaldi keeps on going. They touched wheels. Al Jr. into the wall and Emerson Fittipaldi will lead them back to the yellow flag. So, that's racing, I guess.
1: But after just two years as Voice of the 500, Lou Palmer was out. Speedway historian emeritus Donald Davidson.
5: Well, he'd been on the network for a number of years, and uh, honestly, people thought uh, that uh, even when Sid was still doing it, that Lou would be the heir apparent. It ended up that um, uh, Paul Page succeeded Sid, and then when Lou came in, he did it for two years, and it 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 for some reason it just seemed didn't seem to gel um I don't know that he got along with management very well yet and Lou was a very complex man and very much his own person, and I think he really wasn't prepared to do a lot of the things that you have to do. The new voice of the 500 was a
1: familiar one to racing fans worldwide. Bob Jenkins, who had started on the radio network team on the backstretch in 1979 before the lead auto racing play-by-play voice on ESPN, was the new voice.
4: Now,
2: here's the radio voice of the Indianapolis 500, Bob Jenkins.
4: May 27th, 1990, the day that many race fans throughout the world have been waiting on. Time to renew the annual competition that amounts to the world's largest single-day sporting event, the Indianapolis 500. I'm Bob Jenkins. For the next four and a half hours, I and 12 other broadcasters and experts in their own fields will fulfill a tradition and obligation that is 39 years old today, bringing you description and excitement of every moment of the Great Speed Classic.
1: Jenkins and his team of broadcasters would soon have their own classic call to make, one of the most legendary in the history of the Brickyard.
2: Dwayne Sweeney waves the white flag, one to go, a three-car length separation between Unzer and Goodyear. And that's how they come through number one, the Gap gets Jr. He's waiting, he's waiting, about a car length and a half behind Al Jr. Al Jr. now lengthens it out. He's trying to hold him off. Goodyear low, down your high. They go to four, Bob Levy. Al Jr. has the lead. One more turn to go. Here they come. Coming to the finish line. Bob Jenkins, who's going to win it? The checkered flag is out. Goodyear makes a move. Little Al wins by just a few tenths of a second. Perhaps the closest finish in the history of the First, second-generation driver to win an Indianapolis 500. Al Unser Jr. has done it. In
1: 2021, less than six months before he passed away from brain cancer, Jenkins recalled his pride in that moment in an interview with Speedway president Doug Bowles.
8: You will remember, and if you listen closely, to the 82 call by Paul Page, Um, My call is very similar to his when uh, he had that extremely close finish. But yes, it still gives me uh, chills and I just again don't know who to thank the most for giving me the opportunity to be a part of the radio network and, of course, the closest finish in history, 1992, between Scott Goodyear and Al Unser Jr. What a what a thrill it was, and yes, I still get cold chills when I hear it uh, on
1: radio or wherever. Jenkins would stay as the voice of the 500 through 1998, navigating the network through a new era of racing at the corner of 16th and Georgetown.
2: His night start, Eddie Cheever wins the 1998 82nd running of the Indianapolis 500 mile race.
1: Jenkins left the radio network booth to again succeed Page, this time in the television booth. That opened the door for a new voice of the 500.
6: Stay tuned for the greatest spectacle in racing.
1: This is Heroes of the 500, the greatest spectacle in radio.
2: And the green flag is being waved. The white and green flags are showing. The race is on. The race is on. Jerry Baker. What a sucker this
1: is. This is Heroes of the 500, the greatest spectacle in radio. I'm Stan Lear. For 1999, there was a new voice of the 500.
6: Now,
2: here is your host, Mike King.
6: Race day in Indianapolis, and oh, what a day it promises to be across the state, across the country, across the world. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you might be. We have a glorious day for racing. Clear blue skies, sunshine, and temperatures in the middle 70s.
1: Mike King had started with the Speedway Radio Network as a pit reporter in 1995 and worked his way into the play-by-play role for all of the new Indy Racing League events, with the exception of the Indianapolis 500, until Bob Jenkins departed the chief announcer's chair. King and his crew immediately had a dramatic finish in his debut race, wondering if Robbie Gordon would be able to stretch his fuel to the finish line.
2: Gordon with the lead. Slower traffic. Kenny Breck.
6: Now Gordon's pulling in. He's pulling in. Kenny Breck has got it. Robbie Gordon, we didn't think he could make it. Kenny Breck has picked up the lead. Now with one lap remaining.
1: Over the next few years, King and his team would call Juan Pablo Montoya's dominant rookie victory, as well as two straight wins by Elio Castroneves, as well as the Dan and Danica duel in 2005. But it was perhaps the 2006 race that was the finest hour for King's Radio Network team. Michael Andretti had come out of retirement to race with his son Marco, who had a chance to become the youngest winner of the Indianapolis 500 at 19 years of age. But neither Andretti would take home the Borg Warner trophy after one of the most incredible finishes the Brickyard has ever seen.
6: Three
9: laps will remain for Michael Andretti. Seven and a half miles to realize the dream. Here goes... has beaten marco andretti
1: the former voice of the 500 mike king
9: i don't think there will be another final four
6: laps of the 500 ever like that mike i mean when you look at it i mean there were four leaders over the final four laps a father and son a rookie and an american driver leading the final hundred feet And he was the first driver to lead lap 200 and not lead lap 199. So the final four laps of the 2006 race had so much that it's almost hard to believe. I mean, it really is hard to believe. You know, because it was, you had Michael, who it looked like may have a chance to win the race or go to the line battling his son, who was a rookie. So here you got Michael and Marco Andretti, but oh yeah, throw Brian Hurd into the mix because he's going to have to block a little bit to give his teammates an opportunity to get out front. And then Sam, who basically gets run into the dirt in front of Mark James down there in turn three, finds a way to gather it up and and comes back to win the race. I mean, it was amazing.
1: Five years later, Mike King and his crew had another incredible finish to call with another rookie less than a lap from victory.
9: Here he comes. The National Guard machine with J.R. Hildebrand down along the white line. He is sputtering slow and he hits the wall. He hits the wall coming out of four. Will he have enough to cross the yard of bricks? Here comes. Here comes J.R. Hildebrand. He will cross in front of the flag stand with the checkered flag waving. The right side of the car destroyed. He finishes the race with the damaged race car. Who will win? Who is the winner? Weldon. Of the Indiana? Dan it Weldon. Is Weldon. Dan Weldon has won the race as Weldon gets past J.R. Hildebrand as Hildebrand hits the wall coming off of turn
1: number four. Paul Page was in the booth with King that day and added to the dramatic finish.
8: Yeah, it's it was funny because uh, Mike and I, and I, I admire Mike greatly, Mike and I had talked that day about handling the last laps at Indy, and we were both making the point that you need to be very aware in your own mind, not just on a scoring monitor, which is things, of course, we didn't have in the beginning, you have to know what that order is. And with a race like that, with guys running right on the edge of a fuel strategy and everything, you had to pay special attention to it. And I said, you know, when when Paul Tracy and Elio went went uh, for the win and Elio got it, um, television got distracted with the accident in the south end and jumped back and forth a little bit. And, of course, then I'm depending on the television to tell me what the people are seeing. So I'm saying you cannot let that distract you from the fact that somebody is about to win the Indianapolis 500. And then J.R. Hildebrand came off of the corner as the leader. And I'd been tracking the, the target Chip Ganassi cars, and I knew that one of those was missing as they came off the corner. Hildebrand hit the wall. Mike's all over that. And... I don't think I've been any different when you're that close to the finish line, because what I was wondering was, was he going to slide across the line ahead of the potential next guy? And then I realized the next guy was Weldon, and right down the center of the straightaway, and uh, I, I've, I've heard a lot of interesting things. I actually had somebody uh, write on the internet that I, I knew who won it because uh, my son was on the team, and I was listening to their radio, and... I mentioned that to my son, and he said we didn't know who won it until they were on the backstretch. So, yeah, that was that was an interesting moment, and I thought Mike played it perfectly. He didn't know; he was straight up with it, and we just played it that way. And I think it made it a little more dramatic. Mike King,
6: that was the most the most unbelievable finish, uh, just because of the number of cars that could have won the race in in the final lap, you know, but didn't. Uh, and, and then for J.R., obviously, who looked like he had it in his back pocket and and wound up in the wall. But when you go back and you look at the guys that had to pit for fuel, you know, Dario being one of them. Dario, we could be talking about Dario Franchitti right now as a four-time winner had it not been for half a gallon of fuel. So, um, but, you know, for Dan to win that that race was um, a, a special guy and a special win, and for him to do it with Herda. A former teammate uh it's you know it was a it was a cinderella
1: story and i coming up next a familiar voice returns to the anchor chair and the current voice of the 500 puts his stamp on speedway history
2: alexander rossi almost rolling to a dead stop Twin checkers are out and the rookie will win the 100th indianapolis 500 mile race
1: this is heroes of the 500 the greatest spectacle in radio
6: The white flag is out. Takuma Sato, the Rahal Letterman-Lanigan driver, now pulling up on the leader. Dario Franchini, will he make the move? No, he'll crash in turn number one. Jake Querrey, Sato crashes, trying to make the pass for the lead
2: on the final lap of the race. Dario Franchini got through that, and Takuma
1: Sato did not. This is Heroes of the 500, the greatest spectacle in radio. I'm Stan Lear. Mike King was the chief announcer for 15 years, the second longest tenure for anyone as the voice of the 500. King departed after the 2013 race, and Page returned to the chief announcer's chair for the 2014 500. That year, he told our Mike Thompson why he became the voice of the 500 for a second time. I think I owe the
8: Speedway and this city something. The Speedway made me who I am. The Speedway certainly propelled me into network television. And so I look at the Speedway right now, and I say, I need to do anything I can to help the Speedway. Now, I don't know how much being the radio guy does for that, but it's certainly my intent to give them the best possible shows they can and maybe enliven the audience more so that we begin to see more and more people come to the Speedway.
2: Montoya with power right behind him, power tries for a move, Montoya is going to win the 99th running of the Indianapolis 500 mile race.
1: After two years, Page stepped down for the second time as the chief announcer, making way for a new voice to take over, the pride of Monrovia, Indiana, Mark Janes. You know, grew up a mile from uh,
10: from Gary Um Got interested in broadcasting at a very early age, and used to sit in my living room floor with a realistic cassette recorder and make up mock Indy 500s and driver interviews and things of that nature. And uh, an incredible series of twists and turns uh, uh, landed me here.
1: James took over just prior to the historic 100th running of the 500, and he knew at the time he had big shoes to fill.
10: You know, when you look at the history of the radio network, there are chapters. There, there's Sid's chapter, uh, Lou's chapter, Paul's chapter, Bob and Mike's. Uh, you know, this this will be my chapter in terms of the anchor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I think the thing that I will take from each and every one of them, while they, they all put their own styles and stamps on it, the event was always front and center regardless. And I think that's very, very important. Uh, and, and simply put, uh, we are the conduit to the fans, and, and, and we have to elevate the, their experience because they can't see anything. We have to make them see it. And if you go back and, and, and listen to the shows involving those previous anchors, uh, that's something that they were all uh, uh, able to do magnificently. And uh, that's, that's the challenge that I'm faced with. And, and I think if, if if I can emulate them just a little bit, um, I, I, I'm, I'm confident we'll be fine.
1: Immediately, James and his talented crew of broadcasters had an amazing race to call in his debut. It was already an historic day with the Speedway celebrating the 100th running of the event. But a rookie would steal the show at the end.
2: Alexander Rossi almost rolling to a dead stop. Twin checkers are out and the rookie will win.
1: Since Rossi's victory in 2016, Mark James and his team have called some incredible races, including the first 500 ever held in front of no spectators in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic.
10: The 2020 NTT IndyCar season was about to begin when a worldwide pandemic arrived and disrupted every aspect of our lives, even the Indianapolis 500. Penske Entertainment, the NTT IndyCar Series, and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway worked tirelessly with local, state, and federal officials to schedule and reschedule. For a while, it looked as though a percentage of fans would be allowed to attend the 104th running of the Indianapolis 500. But just a couple of weeks ago, it was decided to do what's been a hallmark of the series and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, put safety first. For the first time ever, the Indianapolis 500-mile race will be contested without fans in attendance. This is Mark James, proud for the fifth time to serve as the chief announcer of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Radio Network. Over the next few hours, the talented team we've assembled offer a unified pledge to make you, the fan, feel as though you are indeed here. We'll transport you from your boats, cars, backyards, and living rooms, wherever in the world you may be, to this, the world's greatest race course, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Like Roger Penske, it is a responsibility we don't take lightly.
1: And in 2021, James brought Elio Castroneves home as the Brazilian superstar etched his name into the record books with his record-tying fourth Indianapolis 500 victory.
2: Off turn four for the final time.
1: James and the rest of the current Speedway Radio Network team are as good as they come. And he, like Donald Davidson, is grateful for what Sid Collins and his talented team created in 1952.
10: Uh, I've always had respect for the history and tradition. And because of that, I, I think of Sid often. And um, I, I thought, boy, where would any of us be right now with, with without him? Um Uh, And, and, you know, the dream that he allowed to develop in me at a very young age uh, that I was able to achieve, Um, I'll be eternally grateful to Sid Collins. It's a huge disappointment to me that I I never got to meet him and I never got to meet Lou Palmer. Uh, But I I did meet the late Ron Carroll and and the late Doug Zink. Um, Gary Lee took me from a broadcaster to a motorsports broadcaster. Uh, Darrell Weibel, and and the list goes on and on. Chuck Marlowe. Howdy, Bell. All of those guys who work with Sid and the guys we have now like Paul and Bake and, and, and people like that. So I, I have a pretty good sense in Donald, of course, as to what it was like to work uh, for Sid, um, and uh, and 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 what he meant to each and every one of them, because uh, you know, Bake loves to tell the story about him and Paul joining the network the same year, and after Sid had invited them both, they were high fiving each other in the parking lot of the radio station, uh, this station, in fact, and uh, WIBC, and 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 you know, um, I I think if if you have any i appreci- any appreciation at all. Regardless of what your role is, be it a, an engineer or a producer, or a pit reporter, or or an anchor or a co-anchor or whatever, uh, I, I I think if your thoughts don't tend to t- don't tend to turn to Sid Collins a, a few times throughout the course of the year, um, then then I don't know that this is a, a a place that you ever you get to to begin with.
1: Thank you for joining us for Heroes of the 500, the greatest spectacle in radio. I'm Stan Lear. As we leave you, here is the way Sid Collins signed off the 1975 Indianapolis 500 broadcast on the Speedway Radio Network.
3: My sincere thanks to all the voices of the 500 all over these grounds, to Ron Carroll, Howdy Bell, Jerry Baker, Doug Zink, Jim Shelton, Paul Page, Chuck Marlowe, Luke Walton, Lou Palmer, Bob Forbes, John DeCamp, Donald Davidson, and Freddie Agabation. With us today through the cooperation of the PR department of the Champions Park Plug Company and their highway safety program. Our scores were Bill Fledemeyer and Bill Lamb, statistics by Ted and Dan Harding, help from Dick Sauer, Ray Paschke, John Fugate, Al Blemker, Bob Laycock, and Bill York. This broadcast's origination from the Master Control Tower. And now, this final thought for our winner. Great occasions do not make heroes or cowards. They simply unveil them to the eyes of men. Silently and imperceptibly, as we wake or as we sleep, we grow strong or weak. And at last, some crisis shows us what we have become. Bobby Unser showed us today what dedication, and enthusiasm, and desire, and hard work can do. Those of you who may need bolstering in your wish to succeed in your lives might take a page from his book and enrich yourself as well. This is more than just an automobile race to me. It's a proving ground for principles of a man's character in life. In addition to calling a sporting event, if I might pass along to you some of my thoughts, I feel that I have not been remiss in my duty. So until next May, this is Sid Collins, the voice of the 500, wishing you good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where in the world you are right now. We're here at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway at the crossroads of America. Goodbye.
10: The
2: opening bomb!
9: Network.